Welcome, this is Lisa, where we go inside addiction to raise your level of consciousness. Welcome, Louise, to the Lisa podcast, where we go inside addiction to raise our audience's level of uh, consciousness. I just wondered if you could start off by just giving us a bit of an idea about what your definition of addiction is. Um, my definition of addiction is a um, the use of a substance or a behaviour that you are unable to control and that is having negative consequences on your life. Yeah, no, yeah. perfect, thank you. And in terms of your story and how you got to where you are, I just wonder if you could give us a bit of a background about you. Okay, so um, I quit drinking on the 21st of September 2013, so I'm coming up on my seventh year soberversary. Um, I was six weeks away from 45 at that point, and um, my drinking had been problematic, or I'd noticed it was problematic for probably five years. So um, I'd always been, so I grew up in a hard drinking family. So my dad, my dad was an alcoholic. Um, there was always alcohol in the house, daily drinking every day. Um, so I kind of grew up around alcohol. So I didn't perceive it to be a problem because everyone else was doing it. Um, and then when I was in my teens, early 20s, it was um, second summer of love. So the rave generation was kicking off. And um, in our family, alcohol wasn't really a rebellion. So you you know, the way you rebelled was with drugs and alcohol, uh, so drugs and alcohol. So, yeah, we kind of got into um, all of that stuff. Um, interestingly, I can remember going to see um, The Prodigy, actually, at Clacton Pier mm -hmm. um, a long, long time ago on substances. Um, so, so, yeah, so drugs and alcohol. So it was always part of my life, um, but kind of got myself into quite a lot of scrapes, but never really really serious stuff um and to kind of drank problematically drank too much but kind of kept a lid on it and the wheels fell off kind of after I'd had my second child and I'm not quite sure why but my ability to um manage how much I was drinking and the amount that I was drinking was just getting more and more and more um and the five years of moderation was my attempt at trying to manage that without actually having to give it up but I I'd um, had a couple of really um na not nasty it's the wrong word um just a couple of really difficult experiences that uh in the year before I actually stopped stopped that just underscored that actually I can't manage this it's a major problem and actually the the best solution was just to give it up altogether um so yeah, I'd done stints of like a month sober or three months sober, but I was seeing a counsellor myself at the time. It was my very, very last session with her. I'd never talked about my alcohol. I talked about everything else, but never the alcohol. And it was literally a door handle conversation. Um, and I had a friend visiting from Gloucestershire. We had quite a lot to drink that night I bought the Alan Carr book and I decided that night I was just gonna stop so I read Alan Carr and six, six days later I stopped and that was yeah seven years ago so yeah it sounds like an awesome journey and just to rewind a bit um you said you know you were kind of 
drinking, but you had a lid on it. Things were kind of functioning, if you like. Um, yeah, definitely but, functioning. Yeah. yeah. And how was that kind of experience for you, sort of keeping a lid on it? What was your drinking like then? Um, uh, I tried all the tricks in the book that everyone tries. So um, I, my drinks of choice were I liked gin. I liked cider because I trained as a nurse in Devon. So cider was a big thing. Um, wine, my family always had wine. So wine was a big thing. So I would try and um so i so i would limit how much i was drinking per night or i would um alternate through different things or i would drink spritzers right i mean i tried every trick in the book to kind of just keep my drinking um under a certain level because being a nurse and having worked on an alcoholic liver disease ward i knew I knew um, the signs and symptoms of problematic drinking. And so I think I was trying to delude myself that I wasn't one of them, them being my patients, that I was somehow different. When, of course, I'm not different in any way. Um, so, yeah, I was probably drinking um, probably a bottle of wine a night, but I'd quite often have a cider before. Um, and if over the weekend, probably a bottle and a half. Um, so I was probably drinking about 100 units a week, probably. Yeah. Um, and, and that was without, you know, big family celebrations where, you know, you'd really let the brakes off. But that was kind of average, probably. Yeah. 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 But like you were saying, kind of doing all those tricks in the book to kind of stay in that denial and sense, to convince yourself, I'm not kind of a problem drinker yet. It's not a problem yet. I can kind of keep a handle on this. Yeah. Although I was beginning to get... Um, very early symptoms of kind of um, withdrawal symptoms, basically. So um, I was getting night sweats. Um, uh, I mean, I was incredibly, lots of anxiety. And at the time I just thought, oh, I'm perimenopausal. But actually I think in retrospect, they were, you know, having nursed many patients in withdrawal. Um, yeah, I think they were very mild symptoms of, of withdrawal and that I was drinking enough that I was going into withdrawal in the middle of the night. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And like you say, you kind of went along like that for a while and then kind of the wheels started to fall off. What was that sort yeah. of experience of when the line started to get crossed? Um, I think what I tried to do was I I tried to control it even more and, um, and inevitably what happened was, so I'd go along for like a month or six weeks without drinking and I'd think, yeah, I've got this under control drinking and I would just absolutely have a major blowout and would end up doing something really stupid that I really regretted that was really embarrassing that put myself at risk um so actually it just became even more problematic it just yeah it was less drinking regularly and then just massive blow-ups where it would just go horribly wrong um and I just I just knew that it was get it was getting worse I could see it was getting worse yeah and like you say trying to kind of elongate the process and, and not drink and then it would just kind of blow up um and yeah. you would have kind of yeah sort of bigger episodes and things would just go wrong yeah and for me um there was a particular line that I didn't want to cross and to you know to to be fair my bottom isn't some horrendous bottom um I didn't lose my job I didn't lose my family none of that stuff but so, uh, you know, if you were to compare it to other people's stories, it probably doesn't sound that bad. Um, 
but um because of my family's drinking um and what I'd grown up around and some of the things that I'd seen because of my parents drinking I always had a line that you know if my children became aware of just how badly this was going that that would be the moment when actually if I couldn't hide it from them then then you know then there was a problem and there was one particular barbecue um it was a beautiful um it was a maybank holiday late maybank holiday barbecue we've been invited to some people's houses um big barbecue in the garden i tried to flag to my husband that i need to go home i'm i'm kind of i'm losing the plot um he'd seen that the kids were having a really good time they were um how old were they they were probably seven and five at the time and we did most of our drinking in the evening so they never really saw us getting larry um and yeah i was just absolutely shit-faced i mean really shit-faced and we'd walked there because it was in the village where we lived and i was cannoning off of the verges and my kids just saw me absolutely mullered and um i remember well i vaguely remember kind of crawling up the stairs to bed um and you know my husband saying to the children oh mommy's not feeling very well and when i woke up the next morning i was like okay that's that's it that's enough you know that's um the lot i've crossed the line it's got to stop so yeah yeah what do you say for you kind of growing up in a household where you were affected as a child by seeing that kind of behavior you didn't then want to pass that on to your kids and that was kind of the line when you were like enough is enough yeah and I mean to be fair I didn't stop immediately it took me another six months to actually stop but I think that was the moment when I knew that I just couldn't I couldn't hide it from them and therefore I couldn't hide it from myself anymore so yeah 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 yeah, and that kind of broke that veil of denial in a sense, like you say, when that line was crossed, when you realised that, wait a minute, this is actually a problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And one thing you did mention as well is about kind of, you know, your story is not as bad as some others. And sometimes I feel like in recovery, we may compare stories. Do you feel like you've ever come up with that of comparing your story to someone else? And how has that kind of affected you? Um, I think having been in the rooms, I mean, I'm, um, I've probably been to less than a handful of AA meetings, but you know, you hear other people's stories and you, and you, and I think in the early stages when I went to a few meetings, I think it's almost a, um, uh, it's almost a reason not to stop. Well, my story's not as bad as everybody else's. So obviously my problem isn't as bad as everybody else's, but actually it's all about, how it impacts on you so i think it's very hard not to compare and the other thing is having again having nursed alcoholics and having seen just how low people's bottoms can be and um yeah i think it, it it's very hard not to compare yourself to others and to think that therefore your you know your situation isn't as bad as everybody else's but like i say if it's if it's a problem for you then it's a problem that's all it needs to be really Um, but yeah it it is hard not to compare yourself I think sometimes and like you say you kind of hit that sort of your own bottom which is good and there was that you knew you needed to change and then there was that six month period of kind of um, trying I guess what was that six month period like between when you knew you needed to change and when the change actually occurred Um, I seem to remember that um, 
I think I think I went into um, another, I, you know, I kind of put my hair shirt on and I went into another kind of three months of not drinking as a, almost as a reaction to getting myself in such a pickle. Um, and I, and I, had, I can't, I, mean, I don't really know what changed in that time. I can't, um, I can't really think of what was the trigger. I think it was just probably a slow um gathering awareness that actually you know you just you just you can't you can't control this um and you just you just need to give it up um and I don't think I'd even when I think when I said to my friend and to you know that night I'm just gonna stop I, I don't think I'd have given it any more thought than that it literally came out of my mouth and that was the first time I'd actually thought about it I think up until that point I'd never even considered um stopping and interestingly my therapist at the time um she also had an alcohol problem that she was wrestling with and so whether it was just that between us that door handle conversation whether that was the thing that just kind of tipped it over at that point I don't know I can't really um I can't really pinpoint um what it was that made that day just yeah I'm not sure I'm not sure what happened yeah well you say when that switch kind of flips um and you start to have that awareness and your behavior may not change instantly but you've just got a different perspective the contents hasn't changed but your context has and then you're like yeah. wait a minute i am actually drinking what is happening and where you were just ignoring all the signs and the red flags you're now starting to notice them and things are starting yeah. to become a bit more obvious you're like wait a minute what is actually going on um and I was just interested, like you said, the doorknob confession in a sense in therapy. How did that kind of happen? Um, I, th- I mean, I think I knew that my alcohol was a problem, which is why I wouldn't discuss it in therapy. It was almost <laughs> like if I don't say it in the therapeutic space, then it's, it doesn't. It doesn't. I, I mean, you know, I discussed. So my um, childhood was pretty traumatic. Um there was some um, domestic violence between my parents. There was alcohol misuse. There was some mental health stuff. So we saw and experienced an awful lot of things as kids um, that, you know, were, you know, the, the children do experience, but, you know, that were quite scarring. And so I was quite happy to talk all about that and talk about all about that stuff. <laughs> But, you know, the idea of talking about alcohol was just, you know, and all my drug usage and my sister had um, my sister had drug induced psychosis because, you know, we were out raving, doing stupid things. And, um, you know, all of that was fair game. But for some reason, and I think it's because I knew I knew the minute I said it in the room that, I'll OK, now I'm going to have to do something about it. And, yeah, it was just, yeah, just uh I think it was just supposed to happen the way it happened, you know? I can't, I can't yeah. explain it any other way. It was just weird. Yeah, and I found that in my own therapy and with clients as a therapist. is like when you say it in the room, then it becomes real. So sometimes things are just kept outside the room and it just becomes the elephant in the room. And like you say, yeah. and sometimes it's like, shit, I've got to say this now. And you just know you have to commit to the journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. So I think it was almost like it was the – I mean, it's stupid, really – um because it was almost like the final piece of the jigsaw but it really wasn't it was such an integral part to everything that had happened um but I just I didn't see it that way I think yeah my head I think that my I just wasn't ready to accept it in my own head until that point I think yeah 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 
And um, in terms of therapy itself, did you have any resistance to going to therapy or counselling? And how did you kind of find it just in general? Um, no, I've always been so... Um, I'm a nurse, as I've said, but I also um, went back to school and I got a psychology degree um, and had some reactive depression when I was, uh, so my grandfather died and I had a bout of reactive depression and I wasn't keen on taking um, antidepressants and, and it was fortunate enough that at that time in the NHS you could get sessions on the NHS so I uh, was really lucky to pick up six, six sessions with a therapist who was really good um, and I then knew that for me that was that was kind of the that, that was the thing that worked best was just talking therapy so never had a problem going to therapy um, so I saw a therapist then and then um, my grandmother and my dad died in short succession um probably within six six to nine months of each other and had another kind of major wave of reactive depression grief really for want of a better word um and each time that that happened my my drinking would escalate to kind of try and manage the grief um and i think i went back to a therapist then um and then um so yeah, and then I did a so I did a postgrad diploma in child and adolescent psychotherapeutic counselling um, at the University of Cambridge, and you had to be in therapy on a weekly basis to be on the course. So I was then in therapy for, a, and she was a brilliant therapist. So she specialised in um, trauma, families, and addiction, which was just perfect for me and um, all my experiences. So um, so yeah always found therapy really really powerful really really beneficial really hard at the time um but actually um allowed me to kind of make peace with an awful lot of stuff that happened that wasn't my fault but as children you're led to believe that they are your fault um so yeah i think it's a I would highly recommend therapy as as an important part of the recovery journey when you're ready. I think it's not a good idea to start it too soon. If you start unpacking stuff that's um, too traumatic, I think there's a danger that it, it can be um, almost a form of self-sabotage in that it becomes so painful that you then seek to self-medicate um, and that kind of keeps you in the addiction trap. So, yeah, I think you need to have done enough kind of how to, how had a long enough spell of sobriety under your belt to feel kind of um, secure in your sobriety um, because, yeah, I think it can be, it can stir up stuff that can be really difficult to manage if you're just not used to, you know, if, you're, um, if your distress tolerance isn't very good, if your um, emotional regulation isn't very good because you've drunk for as long as you have to manage your emotions, I think, yeah, you have to be really careful about therapy and, yeah, not, not, not putting yourself under too much distress too quickly yeah yeah and like you said it can be a dangerous area to sort of be in when you're kind of going into that deep traumatic stuff too early and yeah it can also be problematic with rehabs and stuff like that being thrown into the deep end so to speak um and it's good yeah. i mean i work with clients and go through tools and stuff to learn to manage their drinking and get their drinking under control and then like you say later on down the line you can start to look at that kind of traumatic emotional stuff that's going on underneath because it can yeah. like you say just become uh self-defeating you know you just look at all the traumatic stuff you have all these emotions you can't regulate your emotions anyway 
So you yeah. just drink it or use drugs more. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's really useful and really powerful, but yeah, you have to be um, yeah the timing has to be right. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. And like you said, you experienced some grief, and that sort of um, affected your drinking. You drank more in those times. How do you feel like your emotions and drinking sort of played into each other? Uh, I think. Um, I grew up in a family that was um, quite emotionally constipated, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> um, and there was definitely um, the emotion that was most frowned upon as for us as children was anger. So that was a real no-no. Um, and I saw my family use alcohol as a way of moderating their emotions. So it was something that was role model to us. So I think, um, I mean, there's there's an old sort, there's an old saying, isn't there, that you you basically stop emotionally maturing at the age at which your drinking kind of really takes off. And um, and I was drinking from um, not particularly early because I because my dad was an alcoholic and I knew. I don't think I recognise that he was an alcoholic, but I knew that it was a dangerous drug because of how he became. He was a Jekyll and Hyde character when he was on the on the on the Charlie Carlsberg Special Brew. Um, so um, I was quite scared of it as a as a teenager. But yeah, I probably started drinking it around fifteen, sixteen, and yeah, I think when I stopped, I think <laughs> I think that probably was the age at which I stopped emotionally maturing. Um, so, yeah, it was really hard, uh, you know, outside being a 45-year-old and inside being a 15-year-old. And, yeah, there was there was a lot of emotional work to be done, I think, because I just I had no idea about emotions, I think, when I stopped drinking. Um, and and I think it was the first oh, probably the first year was just an enormous emotional roller coaster. I'd burst into tears and not know why. Yeah, just all over all over the show, really. Um so, yeah, I definitely used, I mean, I, I drank when I was happy. I drank when I was sad. I drank when I was depressed. I Yeah, give me a reason and I drink pretty much. So, yeah, so it was my way of um, managing my emotions pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I remember something my therapist once said to me, and she said the good thing about recovery is you get your feelings back, and the bad thing is that you also get your feelings back. <laughs> Absolutely right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was just, I was so emotionally kind of stunted um, and I had no idea really until I stopped. So, yeah. Yeah. And how did you find that journey of kind of being in recovery and getting your kind of um, yeah feelings back? Uh, it was really, really hard work, <laughs> really hard work. Um, I mean, I don't... It's the best decision I've ever made. Uh, it truly, truly is the best decision I've ever made. Um, and part of me kind of really kicks myself that it took me so long to kind of figure it out. But I think for so many of us, and partic particularly culturally, so, you know, both in the UK where you are and in Australia where I am now, you know, drinking is so embedded in our culture. It's so hard to walk away from um and there's so much negativity or there used to be I mean when I stopped seven years ago um you know there wasn't the kind of network of recovery um all the online recovery tools that have kind of 
you know, exploded in the last five years. Um, all of the alcohol-free beers that, you know, I mean, it used to be sort of caliber and iceberg was about all you had for alcohol-free drinks. And now there's, there's you know, you go into Tesco's or Sano's and there's just, a, there's a whole shelf of all the different options. So I think it's, um, I think it's easier now than it was. Um, and yeah, I think it was, it, it was incredibly hard. I, I ate a huge amount of chocolate and cake for months, <laughs> for months and months and months. Um, I had to, I had to relearn how to be in the world without either a banging hangover or um, alcohol as my main medium of managing any, you know, any difficulty um, or any, anything. It just, I used, I, you know, yeah. I used it for everything. So, yeah, giving it up was in the beginning was really hard, but um, yeah, really worthwhile. Yeah. 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 And when it came to giving it up, you said you read the Alan Carr book and you had therapy. I wondered how those tools were to help and if there were any other tools or techniques that you used. Um, so, yeah, Alan Carr was the thing that got me started. I don't know why. I mean, it's a great book. Um, I, I think it was a case of the right time. It, I was, it was the right time, I think. And so, um, I mean, I'd read his book about giving up smoking and it worked for a bit and then I'd gone back to smoking. Um, so, um, yeah, I think it was just about being in the right time. I mean, I was, I consider myself really lucky because my bottom wasn't really low. Um, and therefore I didn't need to go to um, a rehab and that was also I think part of my reason for stopping it was because as a nurse because I knew what um, full-blown physical dependency looked like I I think internally the shame of having to go to a rehab was something that I just I didn't want to get to that step because I knew what it meant um, and I know that's ridiculous um but I, but I think it was a really strong deterrent as soon as I started to get those early symptoms I was like you know you need to knock and I and I also knew that the switch from psychological to physical happens with no warning so you you know I mean I work I volunteered at a rehab um for 18 months um when I'd been sober about three years and um you know, talking to the um, clients and just hearing their stories about, you know, how one day they could keep it under control and the next day they couldn't. And, and that was it. So I kind of knew all that stuff. So. Um, so, yeah, I knew that I. Yeah. I've kind of lost my train of thought a bit, really. Um, what was the question again? Yeah, no, that's fine. Like you say, you knew where that kind of line blurred and you knew that it was dangerous and you just luckily enough kind of had those different signs so you knew that you didn't want to get That's to right. that kind of place and other tools so I was going to say that um I think I was quite lucky in that when I stopped um sober blogs were just kind of taking off and so um I stumbled across the blog of um Lotta Dan um Mrs D is going without the I don't know if you've read her blog yeah, she's she's awesome so she's a kiwi um who's based in new zealand she runs she has a blog called mrs d is going without 
Um, there was another one called Unpickled, which is a Canadian lady called Jean. So I found these blogs and started to, and a lady called Belle, tired of thinking, um, tired of thinking about drinking, Belle Robertson. So I stumbled across all these blogs who were writing about exactly what I was going through. And that, and that was a real kind of lifeline. And so, um, I got to about six weeks sober and I'd all, I got to six weeks before. So none of that was kind of, I wasn't really breaking new ground. That was somewhere I'd been before. And I just thought I need to do more to stop me going back to it. And so I started to write my own blog um, just as a way of kind of holding myself accountable. So it wasn't just me. Um, somebody, other people knew that I, and I wasn't expecting anyone to read it. I just thought it was like an online diary. If I make, if I keep this diary, I'll be letting down anybody who's reading the blog um and fortunately um Lotta Dan Mrs D um uh responded to one of my first kind of few blogs she responded and then once she's had a kind of conversation going that kind of reinforced um the desire to keep going um and she was a she's about she's nine years so She's about 18 months ahead of me. And so that was really helpful for me in the early days because I didn't I didn't want to go to an AA meeting. Um, I was still I think I was still not admitting it to myself that I had a problem. I'd stopped, but I don't think I really understood. Um, and so, yeah, having these kind of seek what I perceived to be secret supports was really helpful. So, yeah, they were really good in the early days. Yeah. And like you say, you started your blog and I wonder if there was anything you've come across in the past kind of seven years that really stuck out to you about the blog or articles you've written or any pieces of wisdom you've gained? Ah, oh, I mean, there's so much wisdom out there. Um, um, I think the, the phrase that I've always kind of hung on to is that um, sobriety delivers everything alcohol promises. I mean, I just think that's just such a brilliant way of, of, you know, you're kind of chasing this high um, that just doesn't exist. And actually, once you do the hard yards of getting sober and are no longer dependent on alcohol to kind of moderate your um, your emotions, then, um, you know, it's it's far superior. I mean, there's I um, I used to do a sober advent calendar every year. There's a really uh, awesome friend um, called Arthur Corty who um who wrote who who produced a film called a royal hangover i don't know if you've seen it mm. um have a look on youtube he's so he's a documentary filmmaker he's based in bristol and he made a film called a royal hangover and um really really excellent documentary film looking at drinking culture in the uk so it was filmed uh, i don't know five years ago um and he and I kind of got together and uh he produced these brilliant kind of graphics for me of um famous people that had um got sober and we would find an image and we would find a quote from them and then we would use that like a kind of online advent calendar because Christmas is such a difficult time um and there's a brilliant one um from the late great um Robbie Williams that says, you know, uh, if you need drugs and alcohol to have a good time, you're not doing life right. And I, again, just just a perfect bit of wisdom that, you know, you shouldn't need to have substances to make your life bearable. And I understand all the reasons why people might get themselves in that pickle, which is where I found myself. But, you know, um, 
yeah it's you know if you can do it without then you know, then obviously that, that's if it's, if it's problematic for you then that's a that's a, a better thing um so i mean there's I mean, there's masses of resources. I mean, in the early days, I used to um, go to the website Soberistas, um, I, and that's more of a female-oriented community. Um, I know there's some really good resources. So there's One Year No Beer. So, I mean, there's just there's hundreds of good resources online now, I think, for recovery. Never went to a smart recovery meeting, although I hear very good things about them. Um, like I say, went to some AA meetings. It's not for everybody, but, you know... Um, I think, you know, whatever works, you do whatever works for you. There is no right or wrong way to get sober. You do whatever works for you. So if meetings work for you, then, you know, who am I to say otherwise? They weren't for me or I think I'd got sober on my own and was doing all right. So, you know, it was good to go to meetings and to, to meet people, but they didn't become a kind of integral part of my world. But I know an awful lot of people who, you know, say that sobriety, their sobriety, you know, was is is so helped by attending meetings that you know so yeah there's masses of resources out there now so yeah it's good yeah i think the important thing like you say is just trying different things looking at all yeah. the online communities go into a meeting just to see if you like it and like you say some people they swear by it some people they don't really need it so it's just about yeah. finding your lane and what works for you and trying out all those different things and creating your own recovery absolutely yeah completely agree yeah and uh just in terms of like you said it's a hard emotional journey to kind of gain uh that understanding of your emotions learn to regulate your emotions all that kind of um fun stuff um and in terms of your recovery now what's kind of um yeah the other side of how's life like now what are kind of the rewards if you like of being sober and having that kind of healthy um life so uh, i just I it's really hard to know whether my life is the way it is now because i stopped drinking it's it's because so now um uh, my life has changed almost beyond recognition um so um i stopped drinking i started writing a blog um I volunteered, at a, like I say, at a rehab in the UK. Um, I designed an online course. I was teaching one-day workshops in London with Club Soda. All of that experience then gave me the skill set to be able to apply for a job in Australia. And the job I actually got was working for alcohol and other drug services. So although I'd only done a bit of voluntary work in the UK and I'd done a three-month contract with a rehab. I didn't really have, because in the UK you have to be a mental health nurse to work in um, alcohol and other drugs and, and I'm not a mental health nurse, I'm a registered general nurse. So um, I could argue that me being in Australia is down to giving up drinking basically because if I hadn't given up drinking I wouldn't have done all those other things and I wouldn't have then got a, dro a job in alcohol and other drug services which is what brought me to Australia in the first place um so yeah I mean I've also I mean like I say I got a, a postgrad diploma in child and adolescent mental health at the University of Cambridge would never have done that if I was still drinking just 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 wouldn't have um so yeah I live in a different continent I <laughs> Um, I mean, we've saved tens of thousands of pounds, you know, that we would have spent on smoking. 
and drinking and drugs. I mean, my husband um, stopped six days before me, so we stopped together. Um, my children have now been alive over half of their lives and they've not seen us drink. So that in itself is just, you know, a ma- for me is a major thing. Um, they've never seen us drink in their living memory, um, which is is a really special thing for me coming from the background that I came from. So, yeah, I mean, our yeah, our our life was revolutionised by by stopping drinking. Absolutely yeah. revolutionised. Yeah, and I think yeah. yeah, some key key things that sort of stuck out for me as I was listening to you were a having some kind of focus, even if it's not like you say the same as with me. You don't know where you're going to end up. It's all these twists and turns life takes us on, but just having that focus of where we're going, that new sense of meaning. Um, finding the right path of your own recovery and also that kind of strong why like you had I don't want my children to grow up in a fat in a home where their parents are drinking I'm going to make that change and now being on the other side of that and being able to sit here and say you know over half their life they've never seen us drink and that is just so amazing and to achieve that kind of deep why is just touching yeah yeah I mean I'm um I think I am most proud of our achievement for our children um, because it's about breaking the intergenerational trauma, right? Yeah. Because if we carried on drinking, they would have had the same experience that I'd had. Yeah, it's the intergenerational trauma. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah and like you say, breaking that is just so powerful and just, yeah, making the difference, um, which is yeah. really nice. And you said your husband, he gave up drinking um, six days before you. How was that journey kind of doing it together? <laughs> it's been both great and awful as you can imagine because <laughs> um because um for a very very long time it was the way that we bonded um we were very similar drinkers we also um grew up raving together so we'd done all our kind of substances together so having spent um what was it 13 years when drugs and alcohol had been kind of part of part of the relationship to then remove that yeah that took some adjusting um but actually um I think if one of us had done it on our own it wouldn't have lasted because the other would have encouraged the other back so we kind of had to do it together and we had to um stick at it and I mean it, yeah it's been hard but it's been incredibly rewarding so um so yeah, I mean yeah, it was really hard in the beginning, but yeah, now, now I mean I don't think either of us just the idea of drinking now is like why would you? <laughs> just why would you? It just doesn't it doesn't make any sense to us now. Um I don't I don't think you could pay me to drink now. I just I don't think you could. I think all of the kind of power and all of the illusion has just gone. Um and I think coming out to Australia and working as an alcohol and other drug nurse. So I was working as a consultation liaison nurse um, in the northwest of Queensland, which is um, right in the heart of the outback. Um, It's got a 25% uh, Aboriginal population because of the trauma that they've experienced. um, There's huge amounts of drug and alcohol misuse within the Aboriginal community. Um, You know, I've nursed... The youngest patient was a 36-year-old Aboriginal male who um, died of end-stage liver failure. And that, 
being involved in that kind of nursing just reminds you on a daily basis as why of, of why you don't do this anymore. This is that's where it ends. You know, there's no um, there's no soft lighting around the issue. It's it's very very um, you know confronting when you when you nurse someone. Um, so that's a constant reminder of you know if you had a drink that's that's where you're I'm not necessarily that's where but that's you're back on that road again and actually that's a gamble I'm just not prepared to take I'm just not prepared to take that risk so yeah, yeah not neither of us are we just we just it's not worth it it's just not worth it yeah and like you say or I'll speak from I, I find also by keeping my finger on the pulse so to speak um, I'm able just to be reminded you know where that path leads what's happening um, that I don't want to kind of go back there and to just to sort of stay focused. And I find that helps me in my kind of recovery is just being aware, like you say, of understanding where this leads and just having that sort of reminder of, yeah, the sort of where you are now and not wanting to go backwards. Yeah. And, and knowing that actually pouring alcohol on the problem, you're just going to make it worse. If nothing else, you're going to wake up with a banging hangover the next day. And how, you know, how is that helping? It's just not. Yeah. <laughs> and like you say the most important bit it doesn't even work which is just like the illusion in itself um learning to manage your emotions and be healthy and have a healthy life and habits is yeah just ideal yeah yeah it, it, it doesn't it doesn't work i mean the alcohol industry spend a huge amount of money convincing us that it works but actually um uh, again i don't know if you've um, listened to any of brené brown stuff but um brené brown says you know sobriety is a superpower it really is a superpower i think yeah, yeah, no, yeah, I yeah. love Renee Brown. Um, I think she's yeah. awesome. All of her work on vulnerability and gifts of uh, imperfections are all kind of awesome. I yeah, listened on Audible to all of her books or most of them um, in my early recovery, and I just think they're awesome. Yeah, yeah, it definitely is a superpower. It really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one question I did have is, you know, with your partner when you both sort of stop drinking together. Was there any kind of conversation or question or did you decide it together? How does that normally go down? Because when I see clients and work with clients who are in that situation where both partners are drinking, and like you say, you grew up with that lifestyle, you grew up together, going to raves and having all of that commonality and then making that big shift to now both being you know, sober. How did you kind of approach that conversation? Did one of you do it? Did you both do it? How did it just kind of work? So I think I, I think it was me who said to him, why don't we just give up? Um, and the thing is, he'd, he'd been on his own journey of struggle with alcohol too. So he was keeping a diary and a tally of how much he was drinking. Um, and the wheels fell off at the same time for both of us. So he was already, um, so he would, he would do the kind of dry January with me. So, you know, we were all, both of us were already in this kind of cycle of trying to figure it out. So, um, I think I just said, I'm just going to stop. And, and, and I think he just said, okay, then I will too. And so it, I think we were, like I said, I think we were just both ready that, you know, we'd had a gut full of it and we just, we just wanted to do it different. And so actually it wasn't a hard conversation. Um, I think there was some there were some moments in the first three months, um, particularly on a Friday, you know, whatever was your big drinking night, you know, so a Friday night was always a big drinking night. I think they were really hard um, because, you know, you'd have the old FOMO and, and you know, he'd be he'd say I'm really struggling. And he's a he's a musician. So, 
I think there was a, a certain amount of belief that he needed alcohol to be able to create music. And so I think for him, that was a bit of a struggle that initially, but I mean, now it's no problem. He it, He's recognised that actually it's got nothing to do with alcohol. He just believed that he needed alcohol to help him write music. And actually he doesn't. But um, yeah, it, it wasn't a problem, the decision between us. And it was once we got beyond the first three to six months, it, yeah, it, it became quite plain sailing and the further in we've got the, the it's not even a discussion now we just both of us just wouldn't we just wouldn't go back to it yeah 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 and a quote someone said to me is you have to outlast the old you until you get to the new you um and i just think like you say that kind of recognizing it will be better in the future three to six months things will change and it's hard to see that in the moment um, because you can't foresee the future but just kind of having that faith um, that things will be different things can change and you can step into that new reality yeah and, and that's a really good expression actually because um, one of the things that did happen you asked the question earlier about what happened so um, that friend who um, that came that night and we had the discussion um, I'd ran the London Marathon with that friend and she was a runner who got me running and I was really unfit. I was a smoker. I was a drinker. Um, I used to say things like, um, I'm allergic to the gym. You know, I was really, really kind of unhealthy. And so, um, I, I, it was my suggestion. I said to this friend of mine, do you want to run a marathon together? And the London marathon in 2011 fell on the day of her 50th birthday. And so I said, look, if you run it, I'll run it with you. And so in that sort of year before I, uh, yeah, 18 months before I stopped drinking, I'd started running and training for a marathon. I was still smoking and drinking during the training, but I was having to control how much I was drinking and smoking because I was trying to get healthy. And so that was one of the changes um, that were, was kind of leading up to it, that just slow realisation that actually I need to take better care of myself um so I think there was probably more to it than that just that one night I think the fact that she was so involved in my running and the running was kind of the journey out of my drinking perhaps that was where it started so I think that's probably connected to it I think the running got me feeling that I need to look after myself and in, and in the process I then I had more self-esteem and with that self-esteem came the growing recognition that actually I'm just um my mother used to um, verbally abuse me and I think my drinking kept me stuck in that verbally abusing myself because I was so ashamed of my behaviour and and, and so I, I think I realised that all you're doing is keeping that old inner critic alive and actually the best way to cut it off is just to stop. Um, so yeah, I think all of that kind of played into it. Yeah, yeah. And I think like you say, keeping that inner critic alive um, yeah, it's really courageous to kind of recognise that and stop that. But I think sometimes we're almost so uh, addicted to that inner critic because we're so familiar with it growing up in those yeah. kind of behaviours. We're so comfortable in that discomfort and unhealthy sort of patterns because we've been there for so long. It's hard to kind of break those internal cycles as well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, congratulations on doing the marathon. And it seems like that was a good place for you to sort of shift your values and like you say start working towards the kind of yeah. health and getting your drinking under control and just being conscious of what's happening yeah yeah, yeah. i agree 
Yeah. And like you said, with your partner as well, also just having those trial times when you're doing dry January and stuff like that and just having those conversations and leading towards that sort of common vision and goal and using it to empower you both. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, we are coming towards the end, but is there anything else you wanted to share with the audience or anything else you had on your mind? Um, the only thing I would say is don't give up trying to give up. Just don't give up. Um, because every time you stop for a bit, even if you go back to it, you learn something new. So don't ever think that every attempt isn't valuable because it is. So even though it took me five years of moderating, five years of learning that actually this doesn't work for me, each time I did it, I learned a new skill. I learned a new, um, you know, I, I learned a new tidbit to, to kind of, you know, you st- store it in your brain for next time. Um, you just you're just building the strength for the time when you're going to you're going to hit it out of the park and you're going to stop and you're going to stop for good. So just, yeah, don't stop trying to stop. It's yeah. just, yeah, just yeah. don't stop. Yeah. yeah. No, that's amazing advice. I couldn't agree more. Even myself in my own journey, I didn't just kind of stop doing drinking and drugs and smoking weed one day. It was just kind of gradual. You learn a bit more and then I relapsed and then I learned a bit more and then I relapsed and I learned a bit more. And over yeah. time, you kind of gain that experience. You're like, right, this is the time. And it just becomes the time. And then you look back six months, a year later, and you're like, wow. Um, and like you say, always keep learning and just don't give up. Yeah, and there's, you know, it's not a failure. You're just learning something new. That's, that's all it is. You just haven't accrued enough tools yet, but you will if you keep going. So, yeah, keep going. Yeah, yeah and I think some yeah. people get disheartened that they try and give up and then they relapse. They're like, well, I can't do it. Recovery is not for me. And like we're saying, yeah. it's about, no, that's just learning, you know. Like when you're a kid and you learn to walk, you don't just try one time and go, nope, I'm never going to walk. Let's just not do this. You just keep trying yeah, and trying I mean, and trying. Yeah, sobriety is a skill like everything else. It's a skill. You just have to learn it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, perfect. Um, and is there anywhere you'd like our guests to go, any kind of website, or check anything out in particular, or your online courses or anything that you can think of? Um, I mean, like I say, Arthur Courty's film, A Royal Hangover, is really, really good because um, – it just gives a really good view on um, the British drinking culture, which I think is really valuable, actually. Um, I mean, yeah, a plug for my course on Udemy, but, you know, it's something that I put together just to help people if they were looking for a kind of fact-based course. It's just all of the things that I've learned as a nurse and as a psychology and graduate. And um, there's heaps of stuff online um heaps and heaps and heaps so um all i would say is just reach out it it doesn't matter who to just reach out to somebody either in the real world or online or go and see your gp just you know reach out if you if you feel you've got a problem and you need to do something about it reach out for help yeah yeah okay perfect well thanks very much louise for coming on the show no worries thank you for having me all righty